It is often said that the defining characteristic of our age is cynicism. What is cynicism? Well, in short, cynicism is the absence of hope. But where does cynicism come from? Why do people often say that our day and age is the most cynical in all of human history? The best answer I've ever heard to that question was given long before he was ever the host of The Late Show. Stephen Colbert, 2006, gave a commencement address to Knox College. I want you to listen what he said. He said, cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but it's the farthest thing from it. Because cynics don't learn anything. Because cynicism is a self-imposed blindness, a rejection of the world, because we are afraid it will hurt us or disappoint us. So where does cynicism come from? Colbert says we do it to ourselves. That cynicism is a kind of defiant hopelessness. It comes from a place deep inside where we look at the world around us and we think it's just going to let us down. It comes from a place where because our hopes have been given to these other things so often and these things have just crumbled under the weight of our expectation, we would just rather not place our hope in anything. And so out of a sense of self-protection, we become cynical. We become hopeless because it's easier that way. It's easier not to have hope if hoping in something is just going to let us down. I wonder, have you ever felt that way? Do you feel that way today? Do you feel cynical? Do you feel hopeless? Not just any kind of hopelessness but the kind of hopelessness that comes from being guarded. Because you keep over and over and over and again, you keep being let down and you're just tired. The flip side of that is hope. And hope can be an incredibly powerful thing. The French novelist Victor Hugo said that hope is the word which God has written on the brow of every man. What does that mean? It means that hope is hardwired in all of us. That part of being human is to hope. It's to long. It's to look at the world around us and to see that it's broken and to recognize this is not the way it was supposed to be. And so as, as people, we hope. We want things to get better. And so the problem with cynicism is not that we just don't hope. The problem with cynicism is that we've been hoping in lots of other things other than God. You see, we become cynical because we place our hope in the world around us and the world just lets us down. The only hope that we truly have is in God himself. This morning in our passage, the Israelites have every reason to give up hope, every reason to be cynical. 
They've lost 34,000 soldiers. They've lost the ark. They've lost the glory of God himself. And now they're beginning to lose hope. But what we will see again is that in the midst of God's judgment, there is light. In the midst of his judgment, there is hope. And what we will find is that our hope begins in the most unlikely of places. Samuel gives us a tour, a tour of the ark in captivity. As the ark travels to the various places in which we so easily find our hope. Hope in other gods, hope in ourselves, and finally, hope in God. And what we will find is that true hope begins in the most unlikely place. True hope begins with lament. The first thing I want to look at is this. There is no hope in other gods. I want you to look with me. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is what it says. It says, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now for the Philistines, Dagon was the most supreme of all their gods. Dagon was the father of Baal. The word Dagon means grain. So he was the god of the harvest, the god of fertility. The Philistines worshiped Dagon in expectation that he would give them life, that he would give them abundance. And so what they're doing here as they've captured the ark and they're bringing it to Dagon's temple and setting it at his feet, they're declaring that Dagon is the one who made them victorious over Israel. Not only that, but what they are saying is Dagon defeated Yahweh. That Dagon has defeated God himself. You wonder, did the people of Israel begin to believe this too? What was it like for them as they saw the ark being carted away in battle? What was it like for them as they looked around and 34,000 soldiers have died? What was it like for them when they're confronted with the harsh reality that the glory of God had departed? Do you think they began to wonder? Maybe Dagon is stronger. Maybe our God cannot be trusted. Maybe he's not in control. Maybe he's not who he says he is. Maybe we cannot place our hope in him after all. You see, my friends, this is where idolatry begins. We worship other gods, not because they're particularly shiny, not because they're particularly alluring. We worship other gods because we begin to lose our hope in the one true God. When our view of him becomes distorted and diminished, when our relationship with him becomes broken, when we begin to question him and his authority, when we begin to lose our hope in him, we find our hope in other things. For the Philistines, they carved a statue. They named it Dagon, and they bowed down before the statue and worshiped it. 
You and I don't worship little carved statues of false gods. But the truth is, is that we worship Dagons every single day. We worship other little gods, other little Dagons that we think are going to give us life and give us abundance. We place our hope in them, our expectation. And time and time again, they let us down. So the question that you and I must wrestle with this morning is this, where are you placing your hope? Where do you find your hope? Are you finding hope in some lesser God? Some day God? Hope in one another? Hope in the affection of another person? Hope in your spouse? A good thing like a husband or a wife? Or hope in a friend? Or hope in a child? These are good and great gifts from God, but the truth is they make lousy gods themselves and they will crush under the weight of your expectation are you placing your hope in government thinking that if we can get the right people in office the right people on the bench that then maybe everything will be complete God has given us government and those who rule over us but they make lousy gods We cannot place our hope in them, but our hope is in the one who works through them. Do you worship success? Placing your hope in your own ability to achieve, hope in your occupation, hope in the identity that you have created for yourself, hope in your bank account, hope in your home and comfort. Friends, we worship so many Dagons. But every single time, they fail to compare to the power and majesty of God. And we see this so clearly in our passage this morning. I want you to look with me at verse 3. It says that when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Now in the Bible, to fall face down is to worship. And so what's happening here and what the Philistines would have recognized is that their god Dagon has fallen face down before the ark. It looks like he's worshiping Yahweh. Now this would have come to a shock. See, they thought Dagon was the powerful one, but here Dagon is bowing down before the ark of God. And so what they do next, I think, leads me to believe at least that God has a huge sense of humor. They pick up their little statue and they dust him off And they put him back up on the shelf. And they say, see, Dagon, you are better. You are better than Yahweh. Friends, we do this every day. We spend so much energy polishing our idols. So much energy dusting them off, hoping that they're going to do what only God can do. And time and time again, they keep falling down, face down in the dirt. The next morning, it happens again. It's like this time, not only is Dagon face down in the dirt in front of the Ark of the Covenant, but the Bible says that his head has fallen off and his hands have been cut off. In those days, the head was symbolic for sovereignty, authority. The hands symbolized power. Not only was he now worshiping Yahweh, 
But Dagon has lost his authority and he's lost his power. Only God is sovereign. Only God is powerful. And so the question for you and I is this. Why do we continue to find hope in lesser things when the only sovereign one, the only powerful one is God himself? The truth is it's because our idols infect us. I want you to look with me at verse six. Not only did Dagon keep falling down, but God afflicted the Philistines. It says the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. Now, when you read this for the first time, you're probably thinking, okay, that seems strange, very specific. What is God doing? Well, in chapter six, we're told not only were the Philistines afflicted with tumors, they were also afflicted with mice, rats ravaging the land. What do rats have to do with tumors? Well, in those days, we know that rats and mice were carriers of the bubonic plague. And the plague produced swelling in the body, like tumors. See, God had afflicted the Philistines with the plague as a picture of what idolatry does to us. It becomes a plague to us. It infects us and begins to consume us from the inside out. The idols that we pine after, these lesser gods that we worship, these things that we find hope in, they eat us from the inside out. Where do you place your hope? Where have you found hope? Are these things truly delivering or have they begun to consume you? The second thing we see is that hope is not only not found in other gods, but hope is not found in ourselves. The Philistines afflicted by this plague, they recognize that there is something wrong with the ark and that they shouldn't have it anymore. And so they spent so much effort capturing it for themselves, probably thinking that they could turn it into a weapon. They decide to send it back. Send it back to Israel. Get it as far away from us as possible. So verse 13, it says, Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The last time that the Israelites had seen the ark, they rejoiced because it was going into battle. And now the ark has returned. And they rejoice again. The people are rejoicing because they recognize that for the ark to come back, it signified God's favor, that God was returning, that he was answering the the question of Ichabod, where's the glory? God's glory has returned. So verse 14, we're told that the cart came into a field and the Levites took the cart made out of wood and they broke it up. They used it to make a fire and they sacrificed the two cows that were pulling the ark. Now, that should not surprise us. It makes sense that the Levites would make a guilt offering finally when the ark returns. But what should surprise us is they also sacrificed 10 golden statues. You see, the Philistines had put along with the ark little figurines, five that were made in the shape of little mice, five in the shape of tumors. Imagine how gruesome that really was. 
Why did they do that? They were trying to force the hand of the Lord away from them. They made little golden idols in the form of their affliction to try to manipulate God into taking the affliction from them. And what all of us must recognize this morning is that was no different than what the people of Israel did when they sent the ark into battle in the first place. The reality is every single one of us, whether you believe in God or you don't, every one of us makes ourselves the center of our own universe. Every one of us. We have made ourselves the heroes of a play in which we are the star, the director, and the producer. And so as Christians, we come into a sanctuary like this on a Sunday morning, and we think all of this is for us. We interpret everything that's going on through the lens of me. God, what are you going to do for me? So for the people of Israel, they saw the ark as a lucky charm. They sent it into battle, hoping that God would do something according to their agenda. The Philistines saw the ark as bad luck, so they sent it back to Israel, hoping that God would do something according to their agenda. Friends, this is what it means to hope in yourself. This is what it means to think that nothing else can be trusted, only I can be trusted. And today you will find book after book after book being written with wisdom that seems like it makes sense. Hope in yourself. Look, you can't trust anything else. We live in a cynical world. Don't place your hope in other things. You can only hope in yourself. But the truth is, we will crumble under the weight of that kind of pressure too. We see this. The story continues. Verse 19 It says he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. God has just afflicted the Philistines with a plague. It's consumed them from the inside out. And now that the ark has returned to the people of Israel, finally, God strikes down 70 of their men. Of all of God's judgment in two whole chapters, I think if we're going to be honest, this is the hardest one to accept. God comes to the people of Israel and he defeats 34,000 of their soldiers. Then he takes the ark from them He removes his glory from them. Then he comes to the people of the Philistines and he afflicts them. He brings a plague. He takes them out too. But now that the ark has finally returned, he strikes down 70 men of Israel. Why? Why? Because they looked at the ark? Isn't that a little harsh? There's something going on beneath all of this that we have to see. 
The Hebrew is probably better translated into the ark, not upon the ark. They looked into the ark, and this is important because Mosaic law said that nobody is able to look into the ark and live. Why? Because the ark housed the very presence of God, the fullness of his holiness, his majesty. It was the place where his glory dwelled. And no person can be in the holiness of God without a mediator. Why? Because we're unholy. And holiness has no business being in the presence of holiness. That's why only one person each year, once a year, could go before the holiness of the ark. The high priest on the day of atonement, making mediation for the sins of all the people. But here these men were, and they looked directly into the ark. They desecrated with their unholiness. But I think there's something even deeper than that. The word look in Hebrew means to gaze. Not just any kind of gazing, but to gaze boastfully. So what they were doing, just like an athlete would look at a trophy that they had won, they were gazing boastfully at the ark as it came back to them. They were thinking, we won. We won. And we deserve it. We deserve for the ark to be back among us. We won. They looked at it like a trophy, like something that they could just put up on a shelf like any kind of idol. This is what it means to hope in yourself. And so God struck them down. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking about Raiders of the Lost Ark, aren't you? I promised myself I was not going to reference that movie at any point in these two sermons, but I just can't help it. There's a scene where the Nazis have the Ark They want to open it to unleash its power. And Indiana Jones shuts his eyes as hard as he can. And all of their faces melt. It's so over the top that it's almost funny. Like so much of those movies, and they're great. What we have to see here is this is not funny. Because it really happened. God's holiness His majesty is no laughing matter. He is not some God that we can just put into a box and use at our own bidding because we're at the center of the universe. He is not some God who's going to serve us because ultimately we place our hope in ourselves and not in him. But he has called on us to surrender everything. And to recognize there is none who compare to him. So after these 70 men died, the people of Israel saw it. And they couldn't believe it. So they asked two questions. The first is incredibly important. They asked, who is able to stand before this holy God? The answer is no one. No one. But their second question is incredibly tragic. They asked, well, to whom shall we So he go up away from us. They were doing the same thing that the Philistines did. 
In the midst of their affliction, they said, send the ark away. We want nothing to do with him. This is what happens when you hope in yourself. You fail to see God's grace for you. And so here's where we end. The last thing that I want us to see this morning is this, that our only true hope begins with lament. In verse 1, we're told that the ark makes its way to another village in Israel. We're told that the men of Kirath-Jerim take the ark, and the first thing they have to do is they consecrate a man named Eleazar. This is important because God's mercy was coming. God promised Eli that when he brought judgment, he would raise up a faithful priest. And now a new priesthood was being established. And then verse 2, we're told what they did next. It says this, From the day that the ark was lodged at Kirith-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Hope cannot be found in other gods. Hope cannot be found in ourselves. Our only hope is found in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father who loved us so much that he sent the Son to die and to rise again that all who believe will have life. The Son who then sent the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin, to illuminate our hearts and minds, to see God for who he is. The question is, where do you find your hope? See, the reason I think we have become so cynical is because we've forgotten. We've not just forgotten where to place our hope, but we've forgotten what it truly means to lament. Verse 2 tells us that the people of Israel lamented after the Lord. In the Bible, a lament is a complaint. A complaint against God. It's bringing all of your disappointment, all of your grief, all of your doubts, all of your questions that you want to ask him and bringing it to him and laying it down at his feet. A lament is going to war with God. It's wrestling with him. And it's bringing with you into battle weapons of doubt, weapons of disappointment, weapons of shame and guilt, knowing full well that as you go to battle with him, you will surrender and you will lay your weapons down. You see, in every lament, it begins with complaint, but it ends with surrender. It begins with a question, where's the glory? Where are you, God? And it ends with a reminder that God is faithful, and that he'll never do anything to leave us or forsake us. I think we're cynical because we've forgotten how to lament. Every one of us in the sanctuary this morning recognizes, admits that there's something that has disappointed us. Every one of us carries, even into a worship service like this, some kind of doubt, wondering if God can be trusted. Every one of us carries guilt and shame. The question is, what are you doing with all of that disappointment? What are you doing with that guilt and with that shame? Are you going to other gods, hoping upon hope that they will deliver you? 
only to find that they keep falling over and crumbling under the weight of your expectation? Are you placing hope in yourself, thinking that I can get myself out of this? Or better yet, what if I just bury it deep down and don't tell anybody? And when people ask me how I'm doing, I just say, I'm okay. I'm just fine. I'll just bury my disappointment and bury my doubt and bury my shame. Or have you learned to lament? To be honest and transparent, to be vulnerable before the Lord, to take all of your doubt, all of your shame, all of your disappointment and lay it down at the foot of the cross. This is what it means to lament. The book of Lamentations gives us language for what this looks like. I want you to listen to this. Lamentations 3, verse 17. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So as my hope from the Lord. Do you hear it? Do you hear the complaint? I have forgotten what happiness is. God, where are you? Where is your glory? I have lost my hope in the Lord. Have you ever felt that way? This is the complaint laid down at the foot of God. But now listen for the turn. Listen for the surrender. Verse 21. But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so my friends, as we close, where do you find your hope? We must learn to lament after the Lord. To not find our hope in lesser things, but to lay our burdens down before God. And to remind ourselves and one another that he is faithful. The greatest lament that's ever been prayed was made in a garden. Before he went to the cross, Jesus Christ prayed this as he's sweating drops of blood. Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. That's the complaint. Laying his burden down lamenting over your sin and my sin and lamenting over the judgment of God that is about to fall on him at the cross. But then he surrendered and he said, not my will, but yours be done. He surrendered everything for you and for me when he died, when he died for our sin and rose again that we could have life. So brothers and sisters, may we learn to lament. May we learn to lay our hopelessness down at the cross and to be reminded and to remind one another that he is faithful and that he has invited us to surrender everything to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who surrendered everything for us. And so this morning, we surrender everything to you. We bring our burdens to you this morning. We pray that you would help us to be honest with our disappointment and our doubt. And we lay it at your feet in lament. And we pray that you would fill us with hope. Hope, not in lesser things or even ourselves, but hope in you, that you are the faithful one. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.